Well, good morning. I'm always grateful for the way the services are, are put together from week to week and how the music uh, that's arranged is always leading us and centering our hearts upon what the, wor- the message of the Word is going to be. And that's no less true today as we sing about the Lord's rest in Jesus and uh, we're going to talk about Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to uh, page 816, if you're using a pew Bible, uh, but that will be Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We'll look at the first 14 verses of Matthew 12 today. Uh, Last Sunday, we finished on that note of rest that Jesus uh, invited us to when he said, come to me, right, and I will give you rest You and I were made for rest with the Creator, but on this side of Adam's sin, uh, we have all entered a world that we would describe as a world of unrest, haven't we? We are in a world where evil unsettles us and bodies are broken, uh, a world that's wearied by sin and and its sweeping consequences. And so it really resonates us when we hear Jesus, our Lord, say, Come to me, all who labor. And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, there are some, though, in our passage today that think that Jesus is not somebody that brings rest. Uh, in Matthew 12, the Pharisees see Jesus as a compromiser of God's rest. Uh, in their eyes, he desecrates the day of rest, known as the Sabbath, but we will see that they are wrong. Uh, they are wrong because they miss God's purpose of mercy in. Christ. Today, Jesus' disciples are hungry. Uh, We also encounter a man who has a, a withered hand, and both of these situations become an opportunity for Jesus to reveal himself as Lord of the Sabbath, as the one who brings rest to the hungry, as the one who brings rest to the broken. So there is good news for us here. Pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, 
will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 1 begins with Jesus traveling with his disciples, uh, and they make their way through some some grain fields, uh, and they encounter some Pharisees. And it's it's around the same time that Jesus had contrasted his kind yoke with the the heavy yoke of uh, the Pharisee. Remember, we looked at Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, uh, which, which told us about the Pharisees tying up heavy burdens and, and, and laying them on people's shoulders, but with no willingness to help. That's exactly what we find the Pharisees doing here. They are laying heavy burdens on the disciples because they have not considered the mercy that is found in Jesus now, roads weren't like many of ours uh, in, in the city. Uh, they, they ran straight through fields of grain, so it was nothing to, to reach over and, and pluck some grain. There were even provisions in the law, like Deuteronomy 23, where you could, you could even take some grain while passing through your, your neighbor's field. That, and that's all the disciples are doing here. They're hungry. The issue for the Pharisees, though, is that it's done on the Sabbath. Look, they say to Jesus. Your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, any Jew would have been able to to recite the law, like from Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Sabbath was central to Israel's identity as a covenant nation. Unlike the rest of the, of the nations, Israel completely shut down on Saturday to rest. God even put severe consequences in place. Uh, for those who ignored the Sabbath. The question is, are, is, is, are the Pharisees uh, applying this Sabbath law rightly? Were they right to accuse Jesus and his disciples? And it might be harder for us to grasp, you know, why they had such a problem. After all, the disciples aren't doing anything more than grabbing a light snack on the way. But the traditions of the Pharisees often went beyond the Scriptures. They built strict hedges around the law to ensure that that no one could possibly err. They would have likened this to something like harvesting. Uh, Luke's Gospel tells us that they were were rubbing the grain in their their hand. And and so maybe this is preparing food on the the Sabbath. And for the Pharisees, this was, was work. And it was therefore compromising. But Jesus... He disagrees. Uh, Jesus says the disciples are guiltless in verse 7. So why is that? What is it that the Pharisees are missing? I think they're missing 
how the scriptures themselves anticipated God's mercy in the person and work of Jesus. They are missing how the scriptures themselves anticipated God's mercy in the person and work of Jesus. Let's Let's walk through a few of these things that they miss. One, they miss the pattern in David's life that is anticipating something greater. They miss the pattern... In David's life, anticipating someone greater. The Pharisees view themselves as authorities on God's law. But you can see from verse 3 and 5 that Jesus questions that authority. Twice he says, have you not read? (laughs) Have you not read? His question assumes, yes, indeed they have read. But they've missed it. What is it that they missed? Well, Jesus first draws from Israel's history, a unique story about David found in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6. 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6. He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Now, according to the law, there were these 12 loaves of bread, right? And they were, they were special. And they were set before the Lord uh, as a food offering. Only the priests were allowed to eat uh, this bread once it was time to swap it out on the Sabbath. But in verse 3, Jesus recalls a time when David and his men ate this bread. And it seems that God makes this special exception here for a special person entrusted with a very unique mission. David had entered the house of the Lord. We also know from 1 Samuel 22 that Ahimelech, the priest, had inquired of the Lord on David's behalf. So David isn't just doing his own thing, uh, in other words. He's seeking the Lord's will very actively. David is also the anointed king. His followers are engaged in a holy mission to establish God's kingdom. I gather that from from a comment David makes about his men being holy in 1 Samuel 21, verse 5. Also, 2 Samuel 7 later explains that it was through David. So, So 2 Samuel 7 is reflecting back on what the Lord has done through David up to that point. And it was through David that God was going to bring, guess what? Rest in the land. And so what's the pattern here? The pattern is this. God makes merciful provision through an anointed king who seeks God's will in bringing rest for God's people. God makes merciful provision through an anointed king who seeks God's will in bringing rest for God's people. And that special occasion warrants the use of this bread. What's Jesus' point? His point is that the account with David should have given them pause. They should have been reading 1 Samuel and being like, Whoa, what is happening here? Why is David eating the bread? And the scriptures never condemn him. What is going on? Those who were judging Jesus don't realize that they too have encountered a special king. Jesus is the greater David, Matthew has been telling us. There were patterns in David's life pointing to God's future work in Jesus. If David and his men on this occasion could could eat the bread of the presence without Scripture condemning them, 
then how much more could Jesus? He's the greater David. He's the anointed king. Matthew chapter 3. He seeks to do God's will perfectly. Matthew chapter 4. He's engaged in a holy mission to bring rest for God's people. And not just a temporary rest in in the land, but a true rest in God's presence by taking away our sins. At a minimum, Jesus' use of 1 Samuel 21 accounts for an exception in the Scripture that the Pharisees should have accounted for. But far more is how that same story established a pattern, an expectation for how God would make merciful provision in Jesus, His obedient, anointed King. The Pharisees are missing both dynamics at play. And so they are quick to accuse Jesus. You see, they should have become like the disciples. What are the disciples doing? They are enjoying God's provision in God's presence. The Lord Jesus himself. Isn't that what the Sabbath is about? Jesus teaches again in verse 5. But this time from the law. They have also missed the priority of the temple. Anticipating something greater. The priority of the temple, anticipating something greater. He says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And when Jesus says that they're profaning the Sabbath, that doesn't mean he believes they're profaning the Sabbath. Seems more like irony. The the law forbids any work on the Sabbath. But the law also required priests to perform sacrifices on the Sabbath. Leviticus chapter 28, verse 9. So if we approach matters like the Pharisees, then yeah, the priests would be profaning the, the Sabbath by working, but Jesus says that they're guiltless. Why are they guiltless? Because without God choosing to dwell with us through sacrifice, there would be no rest in His presence. The whole point of Sabbath was rest in the presence of God. But a sinful people cannot find rest in God's presence unless He makes a way. You see, God is holy and He will not tolerate sin. So we must approach Him on His terms alone. And in mercy, God chose to make a way provisionally through the sacrifices in the temple. Blood had to cover the people if God was to dwell with them. So the temple was a picture. It was a picture of God's merciful provision in sacrifice to enable rest in His presence. And that gives the temple the higher priority here. Which also means the priests who work on the Sabbath are guiltless. The Pharisees are so fixed on guarding the Sabbath that they miss the priority of God's merciful provision in the temple sacrifices. Without God choosing to dwell with us through sacrifice, there is no true Sabbath. But Jesus isn't finished. He says in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, something could mean, uh, you know, the day of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. It could refer to Jesus himself. 
I don't think we have to choose between the two. Either way, Jesus is making an outlandish claim. The temple was central to Jewish identity. For centuries, the temple stood as the center of their relationship with God, and yet Jesus doesn't hesitate to say, I have brought something greater. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's merciful provision. The pictures of God's mercy in the temple, they were always pointing forward. They were always temporary, just waiting for the day for Jesus to come. Jesus will spill His blood at the cross to provide entry into God's presence. But His sacrifice will be not like those sacrifices in the temple of old. His sacrifice will be once for all time. His death will be sufficient to end the temple system altogether. People knew of Jesus to say things like, hey, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus had come to replace the temple and all that goes with it. It's through Jesus' blood that God opens the way to rest in his presence. But the Pharisees don't see it. And they try to use the law against Jesus without realizing it was that law pointing to Jesus all along. Three. The Pharisees also missed the purpose of God's mercy over mere ritual. They missed the purpose of God's mercy over mere ritual. Jesus is pulled from Israel's history, also Israel's law. Now in verse 7, he pulls from the latter prophets, Hosea. He says, And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. That's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And uh, I find this a little humorous. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, some Pharisees were offended that Jesus was was, uh, eating with tax collectors and sinners. And what does Jesus tell the Pharisees to do? You go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Apparently, they haven't done a good job. (laughs) If some of these Pharisees were present before, it seems they still haven't learned what this means. So if you look at Hosea 6, the Lord rebukes Israel. He's in the process of rebuking Israel for their fickle love that, that fades with each day. It's like the morning dew. It's there and then it's gone. Uh, God's word of judgment that slays them like a sword and exposes them like a light. And it says, the, the, and then it lays the ground for why God's doing this. Because, it says, the Lord desires steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so why is God rebuking Israel in Hosea 6? Because Israel is going through the rituals of the covenant apart from knowing the God of the covenant. You see, they want God's favor, but without loving God's mercy. Sacrifices were designed to to cover sin, not to become an end in themselves. The end goal was mercy in the people. But they made it all about the ritual. And the Pharisees are doing the same. 
They're so cons- they've so concerned themselves with guarding the Sabbath as ritual that they've missed God's purpose and mercy. The whole point of the sacrifices, the Sabbath, the temple, it was all pointing to God's mercy. Mercy that would not deal with us according to our iniquities. Mercy that would provide a permanent covering for our sins. Mercy that would satisfy justice completely. Mercy that would separate from us our sins as far as the east is from the west. Mercy that found its truest embodiment in Jesus Christ when he died for us on the cross. You see, when you miss God's mercy, you become like the Pharisees, heaping burdens on other people, condemning the innocent. But Jesus knows. You see, he has authority over the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, some will say that Jesus never explicitly calls himself God in the Scriptures. But the claim that Jesus makes here, it couldn't be clearer. There was only one Lord of the Sabbath. And that is Yahweh. And yet Jesus here says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He owns it. He be, it belongs to him. The Sabbath serves Jesus. He knows what it's about. He has authority to interpret the Sabbath. And according to his interpretation, the disciples are innocent. Beloved, if we don't grasp the depth of God's mercy we will find ourselves in a state like the Pharisees, quick to condemn the innocent, ready to heap burdens on people, and finding ourselves opposed to the Lord God Himself. Finally, the Pharisees missed the proof of God fulfilling the Sabbath hopes in Jesus. The Pharisees missed the proof of God fulfilling Sabbath hopes in Jesus. We see this in the second encounter Jesus has on the Sabbath. In the first encounter, Jesus grants rest to the hungry. Here he grants rest to the broken. He enters the synagogue in verse 9. There's a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You see, according to their traditions, healing on the Sabbath was only permissible when someone's life was on the line. But that's not the case with this man. So they attempt to trap Jesus. Verse 10 explains their intent. They were purposing to accuse him. They heap burdens on the hungry. And they exploit the broken. Using this man to trap Jesus. But Jesus answers this way in verse 11. Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And so it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Pharisees focus on what to avoid on the Sabbath. Jesus focuses on doing good. It fits his character throughout the gospel. He is filled with compassion for the broken and the needy. And he turns to this man in verse 13 and he says, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy like the other. What power in just speaking a word. Stretch out your hand. You know, the scriptures, they give... They give us uh, little glimpses of what God's rest 
is, is supposed to include? You take, take the land of Canaan, for example. The, the land of Canaan was the land of rest. Israel never obtained the fullness of rest due to, their, due to their sin, but ideally the land of rest involved freedom from all oppressors. Uh, it involved the land producing bountiful food and wine. But at the very heart of Canaan was the presence of God resting among his people and making everything whole. Another glimpse comes with the Sabbath day itself. When, he, when God outlines some things in Exodus 31, he describes it as a day of refreshment. And so every six-day week concluded with Israel observing a day of rest, and they did it again and again and again and again and again and again to anticipate the refreshment that would never end. And now we find Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. You see, Jesus here as Lord of the Sabbath, he he comes to undo all that sin has destroyed. He comes not only to satisfy the hungry in God's presence, but to heal the broken in God's presence. And by healing the man's hand, he proves that access to God's rest, it comes through him. He embodies God's mercy to helpless sinners. But the Pharisees missed this proof. I mean, look at verse 14. They went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. So you tell me, who are the real Sabbath breakers here? It's not Jesus who fulfills the law and fills the land with deeds of mercy. It's not the disciples who enjoy serving in the presence of their Lord on the Sabbath. It's those who lay heavy burdens on people. It's those who seek to destroy those who are doing good. It's those who make it all about the ritual without any consideration of God's mercy in Christ. The Sabbath was made to enjoy rest in God's presence. And Jesus brings rest in God's presence. He brings God's rest to the hungry and to the broken here. So what then should we take away from this? What should we take away from from a passage like this? One, stay humble and keep a teachable spirit. Stay humble and keep a teachable spirit. I mean, consider the Pharisees, known for searching the Scriptures, revered as authorities on God's law, well-read in the traditions of their forefathers. And yet Jesus must say to them, Have you not read? Do you not know? You too can have a knowledge of the Scriptures. You can be very sincere in your beliefs. But due to the traditions you've inherited, or maybe even due to the pride in your own heart, wanting to protect yourself, wanting to protect your group, you can be dead wrong. And that's why we need each other in the local church. That's why we need pastors who are skilled in sound doctrine. 
That's why we need a willingness to, to be corrected and, and, a, and, a, and a heart that, that opens itself up to Jesus and says, Lord Jesus, teach me. Teach me from your word. Show me the way. Guide me into truth by your spirit. You should thank God for for other committed Christians who, who are great to curb our excesses and, and, and correct our errors. So stay humble and keep a teachable spirit. Secondly, though, keep Jesus central and learn from Jesus how to read the Scriptures. Keep Jesus central and learn from Jesus how to read the Scriptures. After all, Jesus is our Lord and He understands the Scriptures better than anybody. He wrote them. Committed people get the scriptures really wrong when Jesus is not central. Again and again, that's the problem with the Pharisees. Recall that moment in John 5.39 when Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, you know, you all search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness about me. That's why the Pharisees get the Sabbath wrong here in Matthew 12. They don't see how it all relates to Jesus. If you read the scriptures apart from Jesus being the center, the whole goal of God's purpose and grace, then you will get them wrong as well. You will find yourself laboring under a yoke that is impossible to bear, or you will be the person that is putting that yoke upon others that's impossible to bear. It's possible that you might even wind up condemning the innocent for being biblical. I'm sure the Pharisees would have said they were being biblical. But the question is, are you seeing how the scriptures fit together appropriately and pointing us all to Jesus? So be careful. Learn from Jesus also. Jesus teaches us right here. His assumption is, is that we're already reading the scriptures, right? Have you not read? So, so hopefully we're forming good reading habits. But notice too how he helps us put the pieces together. He interprets the parts in light of the whole. So it's not just simply, oh, this is what the Sabbath commandment says. But it's, okay, how does the law relate to David? And what happened there in 1 Samuel 21? And how does the Sabbath here relate to the temple here? And how does the Sabbath and the temple relate to Jesus who's over both of them? He's then asking questions from Hosea 6 and how God's purpose and mercy shapes the way we're interpreting all of it. So when you read the Bible, you need to do the same. You need to follow Jesus in the way he reads the Bible. You can't divorce any one passage from where it stands in the grand sweep of redemptive history. Jesus must be central, and he binds the whole story together. Jesus also demonstrates how later revelation informs the way we understand and apply earlier revelation. Right? Jesus is... God's greater revelation. Something greater than the temple is here, he says. Now, if he's greater than the temple, then he's greater than the whole system that goes with it, including the Sabbath. 
Listen to the way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. He says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, including the Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Yes, we gather on Sunday, but not because Sunday is a new Sabbath. But because that's when our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So every Sunday is a celebration that God has brought our rest in Jesus. I realize other Christians are going to push back here. We can have charitable debates. A lot of times they argue from the standpoint that the Sabbath was a creation ordinance. It didn't start with the law of Moses. And, I would, and to that, I would just respond and say, yes, the Sabbath does recall the rest that God himself entered on the seventh day. But it does so only as a way of anticipating the greater work in Christ to bring us into the rest that God himself has already entered. We fulfill the Sabbath when we come to Christ and begin centering our lives around Him. It's kind of like that already not yet that you see elsewhere in Scripture, like when Jesus says, we're already seated with Him. We're already reigning. And we look around like, where? Right? We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and we will be fully, and that will be experienced fully at the end. Same here with the rest. We've entered that rest already when we come to Jesus, but there's a fullness of it still coming at the end. By coming to Jesus, our souls can know some of that rest at the very end. It can start knowing that rest now. Which is why, thirdly, I I want to reiterate a point from last Sunday. Come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Some of you may feel like, uh, you know, you you have to to get yourself together. you got to get things together before you come to Jesus. Like there's a spiritual level you got to reach, and then prayer will be good. Or an amount of faith you must have. And then I can buckle down and get into the word. Or or you got to have the perfect quiet time. Or sorting out of all of your sins. And and know every motive to the nth degree so you can confess them. You know, if you're anxious, you might feel like you can't come to Jesus in a state of panic. But listen to this again from Matthew chapter 10. Sorry, 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invited all who labor and are heavy laden. In today's passage, who who is he going to? He's going to the hungry. He's going to the broken. What's the point? He came for the weak. He came for the weary. Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came for sinners, not to call the righteous. So come as you are, with all of your brokenness, with all of your burdens. They will not overwhelm him. I love this quote from Christopher Wright in his commentary on Lamentations. God has broad enough shoulders to cry on and a big enough chest to beat against. 
So bury your head in his chest and make your burdens known to him. Where do you catch yourself trying to to find rest for your soul? Is it in your works? Is it in your performance or what you can churn out and produce every day? Listen, it will never be enough. But Jesus' works are enough. His works please the Father fully. His works included a perfect life on your behalf and then dying on the cross in place of your sins. Because of His works, God has opened the way for you and you are accepted before God in Christ. Rest there. Are you trying to find rest in your hobbies or your getaways or your, your leisure? These are really good gifts from the Lord. He can use these blessings to refresh you physically and, and mentally and give your family time together. And you should, you should do that and enjoy those things. But these have an expiration date. Jesus doesn't. He is risen and reigning forever, always alive to, to give you what you need. Also, these other gifts, they're not always immediately available. <laughs> like Wednesday at 1 o'clock at work. They just, you can't just take a vacation when you've got all these responsibilities lined up. They're not always available. But Jesus is always available. We can find comfort in his presence every moment. Are you, finding re- are you trying to find rest in getting all your circumstances just right? Like getting your kids to obey just the way you want them to obey? And getting your spouse to do what they're supposed to be doing? And only then, and only then will I find rest. If they would all just do this, then I will have rest. Peace in my spirit. Is that you? People and circumstances will continue to disappoint you. It's a reality of living in a broken world. But Jesus will never disappoint. He is the faithful one. He is the trustworthy one in all circumstances. Wherever you are, whatever burden you carry in your relationships, lay it at the feet of Jesus. Learn from him in those moments. And he will give rest for your soul. And then finally, never forget God's purpose of mercy in Jesus. Never forget God's purpose of mercy in Jesus. I mean, it's amazing to me here that the Pharisees didn't just get the Scriptures wrong. They got people wrong. Not seeing their value as image bearers. More concerned about their sheep than the man with the withered hand. They got God's good gifts wrong, right? Unable to enjoy the good things the Lord wanted to bless them with. The institutions that God had ordained to bless them, they got those wrong. And they turned them into mere rituals without a relationship. And they got Jesus wrong. All because they missed God's purpose of mercy. Brothers and sisters, we are just as vulnerable. If you forget God's purpose and mercy, you too will get the scriptures wrong. You will get the Lord's institutions wrong. 
Your, your, your Bible reading and your church gatherings and, and the Lord's Supper and, and giving and all of it will become mere ritual. That's empty of a relationship with God. Without mercy, we will become a church that looks down their noses at others and that lays heavy burdens on people. Our gatherings will not bring refreshment to, to one another. They will breed legalism and joyless duty and hypocrisy and callous hearts towards the hungry and the broken. Instead, let us remember God's purpose of mercy in Christ. Let us recall every morning how much we don't deserve. And yet, we continue to find our God lavishing His kindness upon us again and again. Those who, for, who are forgiven much, they will love much. Pray that the Lord would so work His mercy into our congregation that we become like our Savior when He said that He was gentle and lowly in heart. He is the one who gets down with the lowly to help raise their burdens. Pray that He make our church a haven for the hungry and the broken to come. We can say to anyone, come as you are. Come with all your brokenness, all your weariness to find rest in the Lord Jesus. The most joyful, refreshing churches that I usually go and visit are those that treasure God's mercy, are those that know they're undeserving. They are the most happy people to be around. We have an opportunity to to grow in this right now. The worship team will first lead us in a song that's called, Jesus, I Come. But then we will come to the Lord's Supper. And it is at this table that we get to feast once again on God's purpose of mercy in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his instruction here on the Sabbath. We thank you that he is our rest. Help us to abide in him and he in us now as we sing and feast upon your gospel. Amen.